0: All right, today we're going to talk about some of the original research pieces and um, top other articles that we found and highlighted on the Validia Group Investor blog for the week of January 29th, 2021. And to start, um, maybe I'll just talk a little bit about my article, which I thought it was a creative title, Where's the Beef? Where's the Value? Um, and I talked about how the, uh, that 1984 Wendy's commercial. I'm probably dating myself here where they have that big hamburger bun and then they take the top of the bun off and, and the, one of the ladies goes, where's the beef? And so I was kind of just using that as a launching point to ask, you know, where's the value in today's market? Just given how expensive the market looks based on most traditional. Uh, valuation metrics, and this is actually a question that we get a lot from the clients that invest with us. I mean, I talk to some clients regularly, and there is a discussion around, you know, where in the market is their relative valuation. Um, and the chart that I put in there at the beginning of the article shows just how expensive the market is based on a whole bunch of metrics. I mean, U.S. market cap to GDP, which is known as the Buffett indicator enterprise value to sales, enterprise value to EBITDA, forward PE, cash flow yield, price to book, cyclically adjusted PE or the CAPE ratio. All of those metrics, the market is in over the 90th percentile. In many cases, it's like at the 99th and 100th percentile in terms of valuation. So with that, I sort of, if if you sort of believe that the market is expensive here, and that's not to say the market's going to pull back or we're going to get credit, I'm not using it as a timing call. I'm just saying, you know, how would, where would we look, what pockets of the market exist, where there might be some, you know, relative valuation. And what I did is I used our market valuation tool, which is a tool that exists on Validia. And it allows you to compare different segments of the market based on a whole bunch of um valuation uh, metrics. And you can like, for example, compare like large cap growth stocks to small cap value stocks. And you can see how historically, um those two segments of the market, where, where they are from a valuation perspective, both absolute and relative. And so there's a bunch of useful sort of interesting things that that tool can help um, you uncover. And so what I found using the tool was that international stocks really don't look cheap compared to themselves, but they certainly look cheap compared to the, to the US and especially international value stocks. They look super cheap. They've only been cheaper relative to US stocks about 2% of the time going back to 2006 which is where our tool goes back to. Um, energy stocks also look pretty cheap. As we know, energy has kind of gotten crushed with uh, just the overall pandemic and oil. Um, plus, I think with like the, the the Biden administration, you know, there's all this um, excitement around alternative uh, energy sources. And so I don't think that plays well, at least in the short run for some of the um, energy stocks in the energy sector. And so energy has only been uh, cheaper than it is now 23% of the time. So that's pretty attractive. Transportation was another area. And at first I was kind of like transportation, why would that be? But if, you know, as I dug into it, it was airlines, cruise ship operators, tankers, and shipping companies. A lot of those companies actually haven't come back as much as the rest of the market. So there seems to be some you know opportunities in there. And then I looked at retail. Retail's kind of in the middle. It's it's not super cheap, but I think within the retail space, and I'm not talking about Game GameStop here. <laughs> um, I think within the retail space, there's certainly uh, some names that haven't that haven't um, that haven't bounced back. So, anyways, and all the charts and everything like that are in the article, um, and I'll put a link to that
1: in the show notes as well. So that was my original piece for the week. Yeah, what's what's interesting right now for me is the whole thing, the concept of relative valuation versus absolute valuation. So you found a lot of areas where relative valuation is extremely cheap. You know, value stocks are really cheap right now. Emerging market value is really cheap. You know, energy is cheap. But then when you look at absolute valuation, because of what's happened since the pandemic, value stocks are not absolutely cheap anymore. You know, I think I think value stocks in general are in like the 60 some odd percentile in our database, whereas relative to growth stocks, they're in like the fifth percentile. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, you know, because they're not... They're not absolutely cheap anymore, but they're still relatively cheap. So you'd hope you know, in, in the future we might get better relative performance and we might close that gap. But by the same token, if you get a bear market, you might see everything going down um, because value stocks are not absolutely cheap anymore. And they're not as absolutely cheap as they were say in the late 90s. Um, they're They're just as relatively cheap as they were in the late 90s, but they're not as absolutely cheap. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out going forward.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. I think you're right. In a big bear market, big downturn, I think everything looks pretty expensive and probably is going to get hit. I think if you just have sort of this grinding and a rotation and investors seeking value, then, you know, I think some of those areas might be, you know, might be interesting. But yeah, it's a good, very good point. Um On the um podcast that we did, we had, we did a great, I thought it was a great talk with uh, Brian Chingono from um, Verdot Advisors. Um, we've got to know Brian over the years and Verdad is a investment management firm. They run, um, a strategy based on a research paper that they wrote. And what it tries to do, um, is look at what are the drivers. Well, it starts out with what are the drivers of private equity returns? So buying companies, leveraging them, buying, trying to buy companies that are cheap, then leveraging them up and then hopefully as companies pay down debt, you get multiple expansion and companies basically are worth more. Um, and they tried to take that concept and basically apply it to the public markets. And so they have a, they have multiple strategies they run now, but they have, um, their original strategy was this small cap levered value stock strategy. And we talked to Brian about that and machine learning and a bunch of other things. So that was a really good discussion.
1: There's so, there's so many myths about private equity. You know, there's these myths that private equity is a place where institutions and rich people are making, you know, massive returns that they could never make in the public markets. You know, there's, there's all these myths about you know, what goes on there and what actually drives the returns of private equity. And what, Brian did a really good job of explaining to us, you know, what actually drives the returns of private equity and then how you could potentially take those same drivers and apply them to public markets and effectively get the same returns you get in private equity. And one of the interesting things going on right now is there's so much money that's going into private equity that, you know, Brian talked about the fact that private equity is paying a much higher EBITDA multiple than they ever have for deals right now. But in the public markets, those same type of companies are actually a little bit cheaper, and so it's interesting. You might actually have a situation now where, for the same exact type of company, you might have a better deal for a company with the same criteria in the public markets than you do in the private markets. So, you know, the whole concept of I'm um, getting paid more for the illiquidity, you know, it might not be happening right now. I might I might have better opportunities to find companies with these, you know, that meet these factors in the public markets.
0: One of the things that he also talked about, and it's kind of later on in the podcast, but for those that are listening to this, if you're interested, is he, he talked about how his firm uses machine learning to um, uncover sort of like relationships with um, nonlinear data. So for example, if they're looking at, you know, ways to improve, let's say predictability of how bond rating changes uh, uh, are influenced by financial measures, you know, they can use, they use like machine learning to try to uncover what those, what those um, variables might be, and then trying to look for, you know, drivers of performance there. So I think some of that's pretty interesting stuff. It's, we don't do anything with machine learning. I mean, we're more, I guess, traditional fundamental quant. So just trying to wrap my arms around that and think about how that kind of manifests itself in, in an investment strategy is is interesting to me. In terms of the articles we highlighted, what was your top one this week?
1: Um, I, I liked an article called "Quant Seeing Record High Correlations that we, we published on the blog. And the reason is because as quants, what we want is we want all the different things we do to have very low correlation to each other. So, you know, if I use each of these, you know, the major individual factors to select stocks, I want those factors to be, to have as low a correlation as possible because then my blended portfolio will have the smoothest returns possible. What's been happening recently is you've seen higher correlations among some of these factors. And so for quants, that's really a bad thing. It, you've seen a lot of quants have struggled um, or did struggle in 2020, because of this, this being one of the reasons that happened. Um, but also we have to keep in mind that, you know, what you typically see is you see these high correlations and the article pointed this out. You see these high correlations typically during periods of stress. And so when we have stress and we have forced selling and, you know, we have panic buying and we have the types of things we had now, everything moves together and then you get back to a normal market and maybe your correlations go back down. So there's still hope for us that, you know, hopefully these correlations will be falling over time. But, you know, it can be difficult during times like this because you're, you're trying to spread your bets. And all your bets are sort of paying in the same way. And it makes it very difficult to build a portfolio.
0: I guess you got to be in the most shorted, my, smallest micro cap stocks to, <laughs> to get
1: the That's certainly the best factor in 2021.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I know some of these lists are crazy with the, the stocks that are doing the best. Um, What was your article this week? So oh, yeah,
1: uh, I... um. Pinpointed
0: uh, Robert Schiller, um, the Nobel laureate, was on Consuelo Max Wealth track, and he was really talking about like narratives in the market. So there's always, and this seems obvious, but there's always you know narratives at play. There's always some narrative in the market, and these these are like stories that you know investors sort of believe in, and they become like the overarching themes or narrative narratives in you know in major market um, at, at all times, but you know especially during times of like maybe heightened uh fear or a big downturn you know there's these narratives that basically emerge and so she asked him like what is driving the market's upward move and he kind of just said he's like I really it's a mystery I'm not really sure he couldn't really put his finger on it but the one thing he I think was saying was that some of it and I, this is interesting I don't I don't know if I completely agree, but um, he was sort of saying that because of what happened in the financial crisis where all these investors got out of stocks, let's say, uh, between the fall and March of 2009, and then the market bottomed and went back up, that experience of people really missing out and getting smoked, especially the people that went to cash, like right at the bottom, you know, they sort of learned their lesson. And so people kind of were thinking this time around, you know, I'm not gonna let that happen to me. I'm gonna stay in, and I guess like you know those people were like rewarded. i mean, I don't think that accounts for like the move higher um but and I don't know if like flows and mutual fund data necessarily support that argument, but he was i think um you know suggesting that that might that might be part of like what's going on here um and then he also just kind of was talking about how expensive the market market is based on the cycl- cycl- cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio what which it's at around 30 now the only two times it's been higher was 1929 and before the dot com crash in 2000 but he sort of advocated you know he's not saying investors should move out of stocks he's sort of saying stocks can continue to go higher he's really just trying to make the point that you know investors should just be diversified they shouldn't be all 100% in tech and growth names. Um And, you know, even, y- you know, U.S. stocks might not be, it may be better to have, you know, international diversification certainly as well, just given how expensive the U.S. market is.
1: Yeah, I think one of the, yeah, I think one of the major lessons all of us who use fundamentals have learned since the financial crisis is the importance of this narrative. Um, you know, you could argue narratives have been far more important in the market, you know, in the past decade than the fundamentals of actual companies, earnings and things like that. I mean, if you look at a company like Tesla, I mean, what's driving Tesla up 500 percent in the past year or whatever it's up? You know, it's not. It's not Tesla's sales. I mean, Tesla's sales are up 12% or something. It, it's a story that Elon Musk and Tesla, you know, has done a great job of creating about what Tesla can be in the future. And, you know, this is becoming way more important for companies than it used to be. You know, it used to be more about if I can produce my earnings, you know, I, eventually the market will come around to what I'm doing and, you know, the, the market will reward what I'm doing. But, you know, as a company now, it's part of your job, I think, given the way the market's valuing these things to do what Elon Musk is doing, which is try to tell an amazing story, that makes people really optimistic about the future and maybe makes them, you know, not pay as much attention to what's going on fundamentally right now and to look out in the future and see that, see what great outcomes they can have if that story comes true. So it's definitely a change in the market. And you know, it's, it's up for debate whether we'll go back to a period where fundamentals matter more or whether narratives will continue to dominate. But either way, it's something we all have to take into account, even those of us that run quant strategies, because it's driving the market a lot.
0: All right, guys. Thanks for tuning into this, uh, episode and we'll see you next time. Thank you. If you'd like to keep up on the research, writing, and curation we're doing at Validia, please go to blog.validia.com to learn more and stay updated. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant, and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau.
1: Thanks. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.